This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Hello and welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. My name is Paul Fleming. I'm head of not-for-profit endowments and foundations in the UK. Um, I'll be your host for this episode where we'll be exploring the findings from our 2022 Global Not-for-Profit Investment Survey. We canvassed the opinions and intentions of not-for-profit investors from around the world on a range of different subjects, including sustainability, macro challenges reflected in the sector, the increase in allocation to private markets, and the evolution towards seeking third-party assistance to help them overcome challenges and achieve the objectives of their not-for-profit organization's mission. Throughout the episode, we'll be joined by Mercer colleagues and special guests to discuss these four key considerations that were highlighted within the report, as well as a range of possible action points. So in our first um, podcast that we have on this series is around macro concerns in the sector. And clearly we've been in an environment where geopolitics and macro issues have been at the center of our clients thinking and not-for-profit thinking globally. Irrespective of what region we look at on planet Earth, in the last two years or so with the COVID crisis um, and all the other geopolitical issues going on, um, many of these macro concerns have come to the fore. Um, and I'm joined, I'm very pleased to be joined by, uh, by, by Connor Power. Uh, Connor is the regional leader of not-for-profits and wealth management in, uh, in Europe for Mercer. And Rebecca Dunn, head of not-for-profits uh, across uh, Australia and, and New Zealand. So welcome, welcome to you both. I thought it would be very helpful, uh, Connor, if we could firstly pick up on um, on inflation. And clearly, over the years, inflation rears its head, and for not for profits, diminishing the ability to continue spending at any given rate. I wonder if you could you could comment, uh, Connor, on on some of the reasons why this is important for not for profits, and and why um, we should be thinking very carefully about this uh, at the moment, the current market condition. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Paul. And uh, clearly, it's very topical for not-for-profits at the moment. I think if we're to think about inflation within the context of not-for-profits, we often see it as a double-edged sword. First of all, it's really making markets more difficult to navigate. And particularly if you look at the last 10 years where we've had either a low or deflationary environment, it's causing not-for-profits to look at their portfolio see if it's fit for purpose on a go-forward basis to deal with the new macro environment that we're in. So that's the first side of the sword. On the other side, what we know is that a lot of not-for-profits use inflation-linked targets. So if you've a inflation-linked target of inflation plus 2%, and given that assets have been performing very well for the most part, it's probably been pretty smooth sailing. But if you look at where inflation is today, and that could be anywhere between 6% or double digits, depending on where you're listening um, around the globe, it's making achieving that short-term target of inflation plus 2% or maybe even higher 
quite difficult to achieve. And again, that's causing not-for-profits to have a think about from a top-down perspective is what we have in place at the moment going to be fit for purpose in the short and medium term. The last point I'd mentioned on inflation and its relevance to not-for-profits is that if you think about the whole objective of a not-for-profit organization, they're typically there to support a cause or support a mission. And the causes they support almost across the board will be um, under more pressure and therefore their services will be in more demand during a cost of living crisis. So given the inflationary environment, effectively what those organizations are, are being asked is to do more, but to do more with less in terms of the real power of their spending of their euro, their pound or their dollar, given the effect that inflation has had. So really multifaceted in terms of the considerations that not-for-profits are having to build in and think about on a go-forward basis due to the inflationary environment that we find ourselves. I would certainly agree. Inflation is the top of mind for most of um, most of the, the organizations that I talk to now. And when you look back on the survey, market volatility and lower expected ter- uh, returns were definitely noted as key concerns. And it probably had to do with the timing of the survey really being before inflation had, had ramped up. But we see that market volatility and lower expected returns um, the concerns on these show up in the responses that, that respondents had on meeting investment objectives. So, for example, over a third were not sure if their portfolio would meet its financial return objective in the coming few years. And I know that we've been talking about low returns for what seems to be at least a decade now, but it's really starting to show up. Um, we're really starting to see returns at a place where we and many other consultants and, and market um, analysts had predicted over the past few years, and endowments and foundations, not-for-profits are really feeling it. That combined with having higher inflation, it adds a lot of uncertainty to, to markets and a lot of uncertainty to, to our clients. Something that's an interesting comparison to that is what we look at in the past. So if we um, look at whether participants felt that they had met or exceeded their financial objectives over the past couple of years, 80% have said yes. Um, so that means 80% of um, respondents have had and understand that they've had a, an easy time of it to say. Um, I think it's going to be an interesting shift for, for organizations who have been, it's been quite easy to meet your objectives. You haven't had to do a lot um, to not being able to meet them or having to work really hard uh, to meeting them and, and getting used to that. And also being able to explain that to stakeholders is probably likely going to be a pretty hard time for some, um, for some not-for-profits in these, this area. Super. Thank you so much, Rebecca and, and Connor, on your uh, your views there on, on inflation. I wanted to move the conversation on a little just around spending. Now, clearly, this is central to our clients and not-for-profits thinking around spending and ultimately making the world a better place. Um, I wonder if we could move the conversation along to what the impact on the spending uh, of our, our clients and, and what we've uh, what we've witnessed um, in terms of the macro effects on our ability to spend and to continue spending at any given rate. Connor, I wonder if you you could you could kick that off. Yeah, sure. And actually, Paul, this was my favorite stat that came out of the whole survey. So we asked explicitly what is the likely um, effect on spending over the next, let's say, short to medium term for all of the respondents. And the feedback was that only 8% said that they were going to actually decrease their spending. Now, when you consider that versus the backdrop that we just spoke about in terms of high inflation, low returns and higher demand for services, what these organizations are effectively saying is that they're going to step up 
and meet the demands of the underlying causes that they support in this time of uncertainty and in this time when their services are going to be in more demand. And I think that's fantastic. And it's something that we should all applaud. But I think if you look at that, first of all, from a societal perspective, it's exactly what you would want to hear, right? That these organizations are going to continue supporting the causes that they support. But we do have to look at it from a financial perspective as well and think about given all of that macro backdrop that we just discussed from a financial perspective, how can we ensure or how can each not-for-profit ensure that over the short, medium and long term that they will actually be able to meet those obligations that they've set, whether it's looking at including some other asset classes or whether it's using maybe some of those gains that have been banked that Rebecca mentioned. We know that the last 10 years has been um, a nice environment for not-for-profits. Plenty of them have, have exceeded their return target. So potentially using some of that dry powder to support current spending, but also ensuring that over a bit of a longer time period, looking into next year, do any adjustments need to be made to make sure that they can support that spending policy and maybe running some scenario analysis to have a look at any adjustments that might be useful in that regard. Thanks for that, Connor. It's been a really interesting period because what we've certainly witnessed with clients in the UK is the willingness um, and the desire to continue spending at a given rate. Um, and of course, as you as you quite rightly said, Connor, that's exactly what 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 we what you know, it gets it gives us a very warm feeling to know the commitment that is there. Um, especially, for example, through lockdown and through the COVID crisis here in the UK, we we saw lots of not for profits with um, with with one element of their income uh, vastly impaired or reduced. And the macroeconomic effect of what's happening now is that you know uh, uh, membership and so forth of of organisations has fallen away more because people are having to tighten their purse understandably because of the cost of living crisis and so forth that we hear about in the media every day here in the UK uh, and, and, and further afield. So just to, uh, just to move on then, I guess when we have an opportunity in a market, we want to find that opportunity and take it. And especially when there's uh, macroeconomic themes that are creating fractures, of course, with fractures and economic markets, uh, we'll find elements of opportunity. And that's ultimately what our clients are asking us to do in, in more difficult times. You know, where do we find those pockets that we can uh, we can flood into for safe haven or for, for better uh, return metrics? Rebecca, I wonder if I could I could move to you on this one, more on themes and opportunities around uh, what we've just discussed. So um, if you could if you could maybe talk to that for a moment and what you've experienced. Yep, sure. So I think as you and um, Connor have very well highlighted, um, your portfolio is going to have to do a lot more. If you're going to continue to spend, which um, is, like you said, a great thing. Um, if you're going to continue to uh, stay invested, if you're going to have to do more with less, then obviously you need <laughs> to find a way to get a bit more. Um, one of the opportunities that was highlighted and, and probably has been highlighted for a few years now is diversification and moving to assets outside of those traditional ones. And this, this year to date, so far, 2022 to date, is a good example of um, why you should diversify with equities and, and bonds, both moving sort of in the same direction. Um, you see that we have seen a lot of downside risk and we've seen clients who maybe hadn't thought about moving into private assets as much over previously, because there was a bit more complexity, there's questions about liquidity and how much they really need, have started to become a lot more interested. Um, 
one of the things that we did see in in the survey itself is that this is a, an important and key opportunity. So private markets and investing in those. In Australia and North America, it was the most important opportunity highlighted by um, three out of four not-for-profit organizations. Um, and we see this in the expected changes to their strategic asset allocations for over the next couple of years. Over 50% um, indicated that they did increase to private market equities, uh, private market real assets, compared to the more traditional asset classes where we kind of saw that there would be not much change indicated. Um, again, this trend's kind of been going on for a few years as yields are, were coming down and private market assets really do or can offer a different return pattern. Um, of course, you need to make sure that you choose the, the right assets and you need to make sure that they're the ones that are, are good for your organization and good for you and um, can provide you with what you need to be provided at a rate of complexity that is reasonable to you as well. But there's certainly something to look into and consider in more detail for lots of the um, the not-for-profit investors that were participants in this survey. Yeah, and I, I think what was interesting was that there's a little bit of disparity in terms of how respondents in the different regions identified the opportunities that they saw. So certainly in Europe, um, diversification and private markets were were probably two and three in terms of the um, opportunities that were identified. But what I was probably equal measure surprised and encouraged by was that 73% actually cited climate change in Europe as their main investment opportunity that they see in the short to medium term. And if you're to dig into that a little bit more, I think what we're seeing is that it had been identified for a number of years, but over the last 12 to 18 months, there's been a bit of a sea change and the not-for-profits organizations are actually actioning on some of those, um, let's say, the research that's been published and the indications that climate change is not only a risk, but it's also potentially an opportunity for your portfolio. And in terms of how we're seeing clients actually integrate that, there's probably two different levels. One is incorporating it from a top-down basis in terms of having climate change really front and center of your investment policy, your investment beliefs, whether that's doing something like uh, setting a carbon transition pathway or some other sort of target for the overall portfolio. And secondly, what we're seeing is actually specific allocations to clean energy type assets. For example, at linking it to Rebecca's piece, we've had quite a bit of interest recently from not-for-profits around private infrastructure and private equity and creating portfolios that are specifically linked to the energy transition within those asset classes. And there's really interesting stuff going on there within the market that we think can be very beneficial for the overall returns of not-for-profits portfolios, the impact that they're making. And interestingly also, given what we spoke about earlier, particularly on the inflation side, there's an inflation hedge that's built into those assets. So yeah, really interesting stuff going on there too, in terms of the opportunities with climate change that that, that can provide to not-for-profits. Thanks, Connor. I, I think uh, you both put your points across very, very well. Um, just a, a few points I would add to that. I think what's really interesting is irrespective of where you are in, uh, in, in the not-for-profit sector, whether you're in North America, Australia, Europe, New Zealand, et cetera, um, the conversation is now progressed around climate and the opportunity. And what certainly we're finding with clients now is that the conversation is around the opportunities that exist within positioning for a climate change scenario, as opposed to what are we taking off the table by positioning ourselves for climate change? What are we losing 
What tools are we removing from our fund managers by having a clear policy on climate, on sustainability, on coal, for example? So I think what's critical now and what's what's really great in terms of conversation in our sector is the conversation now has moved to what are the opportunities in this space and what is the opportunity lost by not being involved in some type of climate conversation around our not-for-profits. So I'm going to move the conversation on a little bit now, um, just because I'm conscious of time, uh, Connor and Rebecca. Um, there are action points within each of the sections of the survey. Uh, surveys are fantastic to give you a view on where people's uh, on, on, on where uh, people and organisations' uh, beliefs are. But without actions, well, it can it can often uh, it can often fall on its on its face. So. I wonder if you could spend a moment just on the topics that we've discussed today on just covering the action points in the section on macro themes and concerns. Uh, Connor, I don't know if you, you maybe want to kick off. Yeah, happy to do so. Um, maybe looking at it on some of those topics we we started out with, with inflation um, and also linked to inflation, uh, the, the prospect of rising rates that central banks will, will set as a result to counter it. What we really would encourage is not-for-profits to have a look at their portfolio and to run some scenario analysis around what various different inflation scenarios and rising rate scenarios will have on your underlying portfolio, how your existing assets will likely behave in those sort of scenarios. And whilst that won't give you a perfect answer or give you a crystal ball, what it will give you is a base case for that when certain events do happen over the next six to 12 months that you've modeled how the portfolio may behave and also have some actions in mind that you might be able to take to adjust your portfolio to deal with those. So really having a look at the portfolio from a top-down perspective and considering a number of different scenarios and different actions that you might take uh, is something that we would certainly encourage. Certainly, um, what I'd probably add to that is that uh, clients need, you know, help. You need your consultants. You need um, your committees, your boards, to make sure that you're proactive and to really sort of look in and analyze the portfolio. And in your Connor's thinking, um, top down. But if you just really go into the detail, what can you? How can you diversify it to, to grow and protect it further? Um, can you add private market assets? Is it appropriate? How much should you add? When these are a lot of questions um, and a lot of questions that need. Uh, thoughts, data points, analysis, um, and and just other input uh, to, to these decisions that would be quite helpful. They're really good questions, things to consider, analyze, look into the components of your portfolio, um, make sure that you're doing everything you can around the edges to prepare for the future and to help set your organization up for success over the long term. Rebecca, Connor, unfortunately, we only have 15 minutes for such a vast topic, and I'm sure we could uh, continue this conversation for most part of the day. Um, I am going to have to draw it to a close. Thank you so much for both of your, your input and your insight into uh, what is clearly uh, at the forefront of many of our clients thinking right now. Okay, so on to our next section of the podcast. I am absolutely delighted um, and privileged to be joined by two guests on this particular podcast focused on our key findings, the big migration towards private markets, a real buzzword in the not-for-profit space right now. Um, and, and I can speak globally for that uh, for, for that desire to move towards more, uh, more private and, and alternative markets. Um, I'm joined by Dina Richard. Dina is Chief Investment Officer at Trinity Health. I'm also joined by um, Richard Pugmeyer, partner at Mercer um, and business leader in uh, in the alternatives business in North America. Um, 
I wanted to really kick off here um, really with, with a broad conversation around not-for-profits and the desire to move, as I said, towards private markets and alternative asset classes. This great migration away from traditional asset classes um, towards more specialist, more niche areas that require, shall we say, a higher governance threshold, a higher hurdle rate of ongoing management and oversight, for example. Um, we know that from the survey, um, respondents overwhelmingly said that they want to diversify into private markets. But a desire to and the ability to execute are two very different conversations. And we know that um, from this asset class, broadly speaking, and the, the, the ability to um, democratize this asset class to, um, for example, smaller endowments, foundations, not-for-profits and charities who want access. Um, Richard, I wonder if I could come to you first, if you could, could perhaps speak more broadly around um, what we saw specifically around um, the, the desire to move into the asset class and a little bit about um, what client's journey might look like and the desires around, around the, the, uh, the private space right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, when looking at the survey results, it really wasn't surprising to me about diversifying into private markets. Uh, the survey said 65% of the respondents see diversifying away from traditional asset classes as their greatest opportunity over the next three years. And 61% of respondents intend to increase allocation to private equity in the next two years. And I see investor excitement about private equity and other strategies like private debt, real estate, and infrastructure. And really, there's a number of reasons why investors are excited about this area. One is the potential for alpha or excess returns through the active management of assets. The survey also asked about main reasons for investing. And 78% of those investing in private markets said that the main reason for investing is a search for better yields or enhanced investment returns. So this is consistent with what I think the main reason is why investors target private markets, which is returns. Good private equity managers in particular have a playbook on how they can create value in multiple economic environments. During a growth environment, we've seen private equity managers support companies through initiatives like helping the companies enter new markets, develop new products, hire top talent, or during recessionary times, we've also seen them help companies maybe acquire a competitor or other add-on acquisitions to strengthen the market position for when the market starts growing again. Um, the second, second highest reason in the survey for doing private markets was to reduce that portfolio risk or downside, or downside mitigation and better diversification of returns from a traditional public equity and fixed income portfolio is a common reason that we talk about. The public equity and fixed income portfolio has done well over the last 10 years, but I don't think anybody expects the next 10 years will be like the last. And the challenge with public equities is the number of publicly traded companies has actually gone down since the 90s. So there's not as much opportunity to diversify. And with the growth in private equity and private markets, a lot of companies can stay private longer. So investors may be missing out on strong growth stories by only investing in public companies. Super. Thank you so much, Richard. Um, Dina, I wanted to move to you here and just touch on some of your experience with Trinity in building the position that you have in private and what that journey looked like and perhaps why and what the results uh, that were achieved from that today. Well, thanks, Paul, and great to be with you today. 
our journey in alternative assets and specifically private capital began back in 2016. We had had a very small exposure to privates before. We had not been very successful in getting that to grow. And we had increased in size as an organization. So at that time, we did an enterprise risk study, and we had had a very conservative asset allocation. So two things came out of that risk study. One was that we needed to increase our growth assets overall for more return. And the other was that we had plenty of liquidity, so we could increase exposure uh, to private capital. So um, we we selected a 7% allocation to privates. Um, and our enhanced, we really wanted enhanced returns, and we wanted to mitigate the volatility of the public equity markets as we were growing that at the same time. So as we started to build our private capital allocation, we started, first of all, we were very focused on finding top-tier managers we could invest with over multiple funds, because we know it's a lot of work to source managers. So we really wanted to have a pathway for continued investment. We were also very focused on vintage year diversification, so we were going to build to our 7% over time. But early on, we looked for opportunities in secondary markets as well as private credit, so we could start to get the money deployed and mitigate the J-curve impact. As we had success with the portfolio and built to our 7%, we continued uh, to grow our allocation, which is now 15% to privates. One of the things that we found, another big benefit of being in the private markets is that you have access to high growth companies, innovative companies, and they are staying private longer. And so as Richard mentioned, it's a much larger universe if you're able to invest in privates as well as publics. So to give you a sense of our success through good markets, and I'll say that's through uh, December 31st of 21, when traditional markets were doing well, our privates allocation was additive to total returns and kept up, which uh, was uh, was very great for us to be in top tier performance. But I would also note that in the last six months, June 30th, uh, when markets have been down, uh, our privates allocation has provided us that diversification and minimized uh, the downside of our portfolios. Super. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dina. It's really interesting to, to learn a little bit more about Trinity's journey there um, and some of the incentives behind why why, why you, you, you opened up this program for privates and some of the outcomes which are clearly tangible and uh, keeping up with expectation critical. Um, I wanted to move on. I'm conscious of time. Um, I perhaps pass this one back to Richard on on some of the survey results relating to complexity and resourcing for privates. I mentioned a little bit earlier in my intro around, you know, it doesn't matter where you are in the planet right now, if you're a not-for-profit investor, normally to some extent, um, your, your governance threshold or your governance budget is restricted to some extent. And adding in a private markets allocation, which is non-standard, if you like, historically looking at uh, at uh, not-for-profit investors, um, this is quite a high hurdle rate. It's 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 a it's a more complex uh, execution, if you like, and it can be quite daunting for not-for-profits to 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 make a plunge and take the commitment and build up, as Dean said, build up that um, these vintages and have that kind of high high threshold to uh, to ongoing management. So. 
I wonder, Richard, if you could speak a little bit about the complexity and resourcing, perhaps some options available um, if you are not for profit and you're looking to get access and how that all differs between perhaps different sized clients as well. Yeah, Paul, I mean, there, there can be a lot of challenges, just not a few, which which could be a barrier for a lot of investors who may not have prior exposure to, to private markets. Um, the, the survey cited a number of different reasons, but three three of the reasons that, that had the most concerns were lack of resources, the complexity of investments, and fees being too high among the reasons to, to be concerned about private markets. And when you look at when you look at private market returns, the dispersion is wider among managers than traditional asset classes, which means it's not something that you can just do casually. You want to determine what your approach is going to be to deal with this because it does take a lot of resources to evaluate managers. There's thousands of managers out there and they all want, want commitments from you. Um, there are different approaches that we've seen different, different NFP entities take, such as building out staff, using an advisor to assist staff, or outsourcing the program, either parts or all of it. And the survey touched on this as well and found that 55% of respondents said that they have outsourced some services to a third-party provider, whereas 29% changed nothing and felt that they were prepared, 9% hired more people, and 7% have not changed anything but acknowledge that it is a concern and that they need to do something. Um, just some of those other concerns and challenges as well. I mean, fees being too high is a, a real perception. Fees are higher than the traditional asset classes. I mean, just looking at venture capital funds alone within private equity, fees can go up to 2.5% annually based on commitments. Um, carried interest, which is the uh, the profit share with the managers, is typically 20%, and it can go up to 30% for managers, especially those high-performing managers that have, have generated top quartile returns, returns consistently over multiple economic environments. And so educating a governance board on fees and incentives is an important part of, of implementing a private markets portfolio. The third challenge I want to hit on is illiquidity as well, which I think is going to become more important as we see more volatility in the public markets. We've had this good period of receiving regular liquidity from private markets, but it's important to remember that these are long-term asset classes. When evaluating a private markets program, you need to really understand what your liquidity needs are, not just for this year or the next year, but over the long-term. Because when you're committing today, you're potentially locking up assets for six to 10 years. And while there is a secondary market out there, it is complex and not easy to get liquidity if you, if you need liquidity. And usually if, if you need liquidity, it's during a time where pricing may not be as best for you to, to maximize your value on that investment. Um, and we, we help investors try to understand this risk by doing sensitivity analysis around their commitment pacing and portfolio expectations. Um, but it but it is a real risk to be concerned about. Dean, I wonder then if, if if you could comment and if any of those those points resonate with you on 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 your particular journey on the challenges involved in some of the thought process around entering into a, a private markets program. Um, some of what 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 we've said today resonate, and did those challenges land with you as an organization, and how did you overcome them? Richard covered a lot of great points, and they do all resonate with me. Investing in privates does add complexity to portfolios. 
One thing I would mention is in the beginning, having a good education process with your board or investment committee is really important to gain their support. We also continue to do a deep dive annual review with our committee to keep them engaged. Um, at Trinity Health, we have a, a very talented but lean team internally. So one of the things that worked for us is that we found the right advisor to help us build the portfolio, and that was key. And I would say the two things that helped us most, uh, one was modeling our commitments and our projected cash flows and keeping that going on an ongoing basis. And then second, forward calendaring and understanding what funds would be coming out and when, and having the ability to build relationships with some of the private managers in advance of funds coming to market so that we would be ready and they would know us as an investor already because it can be competitive to get into some of the top tier funds. I would say that you know building a private equity uh, allocation for us, it was pretty exciting and provided career growth for all of our team. In the early days, it was a lot of new funds. Uh, but now, as I said, we wanted to find managers we could re-up with. And so today we have more re-ups than new funds in our portfolio. I want to get on to a very important topic that covers you know, most of our conversations around uh, governance um, in, in, in the not-for-profit space. Um, ESG, DEI, responsible investment, climate, carbon, et cetera, et cetera. It is a huge area of consideration for many not-for-profit clients. Um, and I wanted to, I suppose, just begin to unpack some of the stories um, and the conversations we're having around ESG and DEI, for example, in the private space. We know this is a very well-trodden path in the long-only assets, especially in the equity space. Um, it's in some sectors globally, it's a given. Um, in credit markets, for example, a little bit more challenging to uh, to come by, but certainly we're seeing development in, in that space. I wonder if Richard, I could ask you firstly to, to, to comment on, on ESG, DEI, responsible investment in, in, in the private space. Um, and then and then and then Dina, maybe if you could share a little bit on uh, on 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 what your focus was within that arena and what the results were that, that, that you got from that. Yeah, when looking at the survey, um, the top two reasons globally for doing private assets that we talked about was enhancing returns and better diversifying the portfolio. But one of the interesting things is when you when you looked at it by region, the UK and Europe, returns are still at the top of the list, but using private markets as a means of implementing an ESG and or impact investment strategy increased in importance to be the second most important item. And I think this is an area that's going to become increasingly more important to US-based investors and, and other investors around the globe. I know it's an area that Dina has also been thinking about with Trinity Health for, for multiple years. Um, with private markets, you can have more concentrated strategies. The managers have more control of the assets in many cases. So you can meet your organization's goals around any ESG considerations or diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Another area that we see is sustainability. And there's a number of funds either focused on this area or now focusing on it as part of a broader strategy. For example, I've seen venture capital managers focusing more on climate technology and finding companies that are helping solve some of the issues that have emerged from climate change. Yeah, thanks, Richard. We um, at, at Trinity Health, we're Catholic values uh, firm and mission driven. So our focus on ESG and DEI initiatives 
is of really high importance to our team. And we see that as the double return of the portfolio we achieve. And we've had great success in privates, uh, finding both uh, diverse owned and also uh, senior leadership at our firms uh, being of being diverse. And I would tell you that, in fact, we have more diverse owned firms in our private allocation than we do in our publics. The other thing we're seeing is our private funds promoting DE&I in their hiring practices. And they also have the ability uh, to influence the underlying companies. In fact, we have one fund that we've invested with that has developed a DE&I course with Harvard that they then use to train their portfolio companies in these practices. We've also had great success in hiring firms focused on ESG, and many are signatories of UNPRI. We have a number of our portfolio companies that are uh, involved with renewable energy, healthcare innovation, data infrastructure, and rural or disadvantaged areas. And lastly, we have invested in specifically an impact fund, which we're on the advisory board of. So that's really brought us closer and have more impact ourselves on these initiatives. And what's great about it is we're able to support our mission and values, along with generating great returns in the alternative space. Superb. Thank you so much, uh, Dina, for, for your insights into uh, your experience in the space. And clearly, there's a lot of... Uh, there's, there's a lot of options available now for investors, both North America, UK, Europe, and further afield. Um, and, and it's a very interesting case study to hear um, of, of, of a, a live example where you've you've taken on some challenges and overcome them to some extent and, 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 and are successfully building a position in the private space. Richard, thank you so much for uh, for all of your insight into this uh, into this space. I'm sure our listeners are taking taking away um, lots of key points. And of course, the key finding um, on, on, on the big migration, as we put it, um, in investors looking to diversify, or perhaps, dare I say, being forced to diversify given recent market events. On the next topic, um, I'm joined by Richard Williams, the finance director at one of the Church of England dioceses, um, the Diocese of Rochester. Very warm welcome to you, Richard. Thank you so much for joining us. Also joined um, again by George Steyer um, from the, uh, he's the executive director at the Intentional Endowments Network. And uh, the purpose of this discussion is around OCIO. Um, now, OCIO, an outsourcing or outsourced chief investment officer, um, it can also be termed fiduciary management, implemented consulting. There's a whole array of different terminologies around this, uh, this new format of investing, if you like. Um, and what we wanted today to do today is discuss some of the findings of the survey. We wanted to discuss a little bit about what are um, the way that the market is moving and what um, investors and why investors are, are, are moving in this trend towards with both smaller and larger endowments, um, moving towards more delegation and offsetting some of the heavy lifting uh, to specialist managers or consultants, for example. Richard, I wonder if you could just comment um, on, I suppose, your journey and and, and and where the diocese was in terms of decision-making that forced you to look at alternative structures and options available and, and whether OCIO was something obvious or what your sort of chronology of events were that got you to a sort of um, a more delegated approach to, uh, to, to your investments. Thank you, Paul, and hi to George. 
Yes, um, I, I think we went through a, a very traditional way of operating in, in the UK, at least for charities and smaller charities, in that we had one or two fund managers who had their what you might call an off-the-shelf fund with its own asset allocation and returns and historic returns. And generally, you tend to go for the ones that have the best performance. And you make that decision every five years or so. And sometimes you might have a beauty parade. Sometimes you might stick with the same fund managers. But in that context, you're stuck with that fund manager and its performance for a lengthy period of time, five years. You have no influence over its asset allocation, no influence over its ESG, although that obviously is part of the decision-making process. Um, And in a sense, you also have to receive exposure to alternatives and its own choices of private equity uh, and the like. And you have a focus generally on a a fixed yield and then hopefully a good return alongside that. So whilst it's off the shelf, there are limitations and also frustrations uh, in the inability to really control what's going on. George, maybe I'll pass on to you for this question more generally then. In terms of what the sort of North American movement is now towards OCIO or, 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 or delegation, because we're certainly seeing in the UK a shift towards, and perhaps that's more from a turbulent market perspective, um, you know, areas such as private markets and specialist managers and specialist asset classes, where the governance hurdle is higher perhaps than traditional asset classes, and therefore the requirement to be forced to delegate or offset or um, or so forth. Is that a trend you're seeing in North America? I wonder if you could comment on, on that more generally. Yeah, it is. And I think it's something we've seen growing over the past you know, several years, decade or so. Um, you know, we come out of we're a, a nonprofit peer learning network focused on helping endowments learn about and implement ESG and mission aligned investment strategies. So we kind of come at it from that perspective. Um, and we've seen a lot of the endowments that we work with um, you know, implement, use, or, or move to an, an outsourced model, um, particularly what we would kind of consider the small, medium-sized endowments, kind of anything um, with AUM under a billion or so. Um, and, you know, one of the, the key reasons we've seen for that is it opens up more time for that kind of governance level, strategic decision-making around concepts like ESG and mission alignment. Um, you know, investment committees are just very busy. They only meet a few times a year and have, have very full agendas. So being able to take some of that um, manager due diligence, selection, reporting, monitoring off the plate, I think really helps kind of open up the conversations for some of those bigger picture issues. Um, but but beyond the ESG, you know, yes, certainly, you know, kind of the rising complexity, um, moving in other asset classes, some of the um, other reasons for moving towards this that we saw in the report, I think are uh, are generally true here in the U.S. as well. Super, super. Um, I want to move the conversation on a little to ESG, responsible investing, um, and 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 that that whole area in regard to outsourcing. Um, there is a perception that, to some extent, by using the term delegation, if I will, by handing the reins over in 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 ESG or RI, that that you're perhaps handing the control over to some extent and losing that kind of oversight function. Um, now, clearly, when we speak to clients, um, you, you know, there are structures that actually 
are more empowering in terms of oversight. You're delegating the oversight and uh, the ongoing monitoring of, of underlying managers, for example, which can be very helpful, something that you know, your resource strapped not-for-profits often suffer with, uh, you know, the ability to have the day-to-day management and oversight of, of fund managers. George, I wonder if I come back to you on, on that then, just around ESG and RI and and whether this outsourcing is 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 an area that you're seeing clients take advantage of for ESG purposes or steer away from because they feel that actually, do you know what, we can we need we need more hands-on here and and perhaps there are some perceptions that we need and, and, and could perhaps um, put to bed here. Yeah, I mean, I think we have seen a little bit of it kind of cutting both ways. I think on balance, um, you know, we've heard from more that it's a helpful model, as I said, to kind of open up more time for those strategic conversations around ESG and mission alignment and really setting that policy at the governance level, as opposed to, you know, having to focus a lot of time more on the implementation um, so I'd say on balance that it did. And, you know, these these outsourced groups can also bring in a lot of expertise. They're working with other clients. They're engaging with the field more broadly. This is their full-time job. So they can pull in a lot of perspectives um, that can help bring some really, you know, I think good insights around implementing ESG strategies, you know, particularly for what is still a relatively new field and, and kind of constantly evolving. So I think on balance, um, that's where we see most of our members seeing benefit in it. Uh, but we have seen, you know, some perception of that kind of lack of control and also some examples in practice where, you know, I think particularly earlier on um, where the fossil fuel divestment movement, which is, you know, really in the last 10 years or so sparked and driven a lot of conversations, uh, at least within our membership around these topics, um, where some of the models might have pooled funds or pooled vehicles, where some of the, the clients or asset owners, you know, did want to move to fossil-free strategies, where some didn't, and so we saw a little bit of shakeout there. And you know, some would find other service providers that were willing to do that. But I think, as the sort of field and space has evolved, more of the um, OCIO providers have have found ways to kind of um, make make those strategies work for all of their clients and, and offer different options. So, yeah, I think on balance, most are are seeing the benefits of this. Right. Super. It's really interesting just hearing that and understanding the difference between, you know, how the UK, Europe, for example, to to, to North America and 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 clearly, you know, the approach to not-for-profit investing, there is quite a void between the two. But actually, there are there are similarities that we're beginning to see around uh, around governance, generally governance, and and uh, and and outsourcing certain elements. Uh, on on that, Richard, I wanted to move move back to you, if you will, in your experience. I know that you know the um, the, the the diocese um, w- w- was on a, a journey of, of such, which which you and and, and your team um, sort of uh, pioneered to get to a a more robust governance policy. Is that something you set out to do, and how is that different from? the model that you had before you spoke a little bit earlier about the lack of ability to customize through just direct investment. Sure. We were particularly attracted uh, initially about the idea of having a bit more control over the strategic asset allocation of of the funds that we were investing, uh, which drew drew us to this option. Um, I think as we went down this route, we discovered that actually not only did we have the ability to control um, the 
asset allocation and and determine the the variance um, of of the return and and the return level that we were aiming for, but also the actual area of ESG and and more so climate change. We were able to say within the the asset allocation where we wanted the focus to be and particularly on equity on sustainability so apart from the sort of traditional sin stocks that we were not uh, wanting to be invested in according to many charities and also the church we were also able to say actually we want to be pro sustainability and pro climate change and route to net zero and that's become an increasing focus of picking the right funds and picking the right um options of investment and particularly on the alternatives we were able to say well there's an option of putting 15% of our portfolio in private equity specifically aimed at healthcare and climate change and sustainability and it was aligned with our own values and our own objectives and also had very strong returns so it has given us much more um input really into where we want to put our money but also into the choice of the fund managers if you like underlying which align with our esg mm. um, demands mm-hmm. that's really helpful Th- thanks for sharing that richard and in, in your experience and some of the outcomes then um that, that that you were you were able to to get it's a really interesting space it's opening up it's developing massively globally um, which is really exciting to see for, for, for a number of reasons. I guess I wanted to just close more on, George, if, if you could comment, if you will, on, I guess, the effectiveness that you've seen through the, the, the network of endowments foundations that you speak to daily and, and, and what, what, what you're seeing in terms of moving the market forward. Is this, is this clients or, or, or um, endowments that are doing this because they have to? Or doing this because they want to, and and because they're getting, as Richard put, you know, better outcomes from their from their investment capital. Yeah, I mean, my sense is, you know, it's it's a move to um, again open up some of that time to focus on sort of the bigger picture issues and not get too mired in the details of manager due diligence and selection and monitoring and reporting. Um, and to just bring in that external expertise, and you know, we have seen um, as uh, endowments have grown and kind of reevaluated their models, you know, some sort of hybrid models, like you said, there's a spectrum, um, but we've even seen some that have hired internally as they've gotten larger, but also maintained, you know, their work with consultants and OCIOs um, to, you know, continue to, to take some of that kind of work off the plate. So um, yeah, I think, you know, from what we've heard and just as the trend kind of continues to play out, um, a lot of the endowments here in the US have, have found success with it and been pleased with the results. Thanks, George. Uh, we're running out of time, Richard. I just wanted to close and um, and maybe just ask you to comment more broadly on your, uh, I suppose your your general experience today. You you and the organisation have had a uh, an outsourced um, model for for some few years now, and um, I just wanted to I guess just close with um, some of your your feelings towards you know your experience. You, you you've had that outsourced model through the COVID uh, downturn in markets. Um, through more recently more turbulent markets and and just how that has played out in your experience and 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 if you could comment on that that would be very helpful thank you well we actually found the first year pre-covid uh we had the best returns in the market 
better than the the best fund, uh, which was particularly pleasing. Uh, During COVID and the cost of living crisis that we're facing at the moment, um, I think the downturn has been pretty much aligned with with other funds. So in that respect, we're we're, we're pretty happy with with the overall returns and, and where things have gone. It's just the level of control and the conversations we have around strategic allocation, we as an organization have moved to total return. And rather than having an off-the-shelf fund which focuses on yield and bring in, say, 3% per annum, we are actually able to turn around the strategic asset allocation in order to deliver the maximum total return and having those sorts of conversations which we just never had before. Um, We've also got a significant chunk of property that we're selling that we want to, to put uh, into the market, and rather than having sort of beauty parades around that, we're able to simply to put it into the market portfolio in the structure that we've we've set up, and we don't, and that's for us um, a very effective way of operating. So for us, it's worked, um, and it's taken a lot of the the sort of the admin and and uh, the worker away from us, but it's also given us more strategic control. So it's worked very well for us. Thanks so much, Richard. Really appreciate you sharing your your experience. And um, we are running out of time, so I'm I'm, I'm going to have to close this uh, this podcast now. But thank you so much, both uh, Richard and George, for 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 dialing in and for sharing your experiences and some of your feedback of what we're seeing in the markets. Clearly, OCIO is something that is here to stay. Um, it's an evolving piece, and um, there is quite a spectrum of opportunity available within that. Um, and it offers clients, large and small, the opportunity to access broader areas of the market. There are, of course, drawbacks and uh, benefits to uh, to each and every approach, and it's been a great opportunity to throw some ideas and uh, and uh, some 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 views around with you both today. Thank you so much. Joining me to explore and discuss the sustainability key findings is Gilles Lavoie, partner and not-for-profit investment consultant in Canada here at Mercer, and Georges Dyer, executive director of the Intentional Endowments Network. Georges, I was hoping you could probably um, kick us off here on areas around some of the confusion that we get from our clients and in the broad market around ESG, sustainability, climate, um, all of the other terminologies that we get flooded with in the market and help provide a little bit of clarity around really what has become the important factors. So the what factors, if you like, on uh, on sustainability and ESG. Um, would, would you be kind enough to, to kick off with that, George? Absolutely, Paul, and it's great to be here. Thank you. Um, first, I think it's just great to see from the report how many nonprofits are incorporating ESG or plan to in the next 12 months. I think it was over 80% of respondents. Um, so it definitely feels like, you know, if you're not doing this at this stage, you're missing something. And, and we're definitely seeing that increasingly within our network as well. Um, but there is still confusion around the terminology and, and what using ESG factors in the investment process really means and looks like. Um, and actually here in the U.S., there's been a bit of a, a kind of politically motivated, coordinated effort to um, politicize these conversations and pull ESG into sort of our, our culture wars here. Um, but this is not political. And, it, you know, it's simply looking at factors that are material to the investment decisions. Um, 
And those factors that might not show up on traditional financial statements related to environmental, social, and governance issues. Um, and I think all investors do this at some level, but you know, I think looking at ESG factors is really about doing it explicitly and systematically. Um, so you can be more effective in doing that uh, and identifying the risks and opportunities that might come along with these factors just for better long-term investing. Super. Thank you, George, for that explanation of what um, ESG means and why people are doing it. Well, the what. I think what's also important is to understand the why a lot of organizations are doing it. Um, if you think about it, ESG is a bit virtuous, right? And if you look at what those organizations and NFP organizations do, they're also virtuous organizations. They're trying to help their community. They're trying to help people, right? So they have missions. They have values. And it makes a lot of sense to me that everything that they do from A to Z, including a big portion of which is investment, would also be aligned with those missions and values. So if you look at the reason why organizations are doing it, that is the first reason. Uh, the second one, which I think to me is a bit linked to that as well, is that they have stakeholders. They have employees that have decided to work for those organizations because they do have those beliefs in them. They have people giving money to them and want to make sure that they're good stewards of their assets and they're doing the right thing with the money they've been given. And so alignment with the stakeholders and expectation of stakeholders is also very important. And finally, and what I find very interesting that we start seeing more and more as a reason why people are taking into account ESG factors and the investment is that they see it as a fiduciary duty. They need to be good stewards of the assets being given to them, and therefore they want to do it. But as you mentioned, 83% organization in some way or form are using ESG factors. So why not all organizations? Well, it, it's you know, cultures comes from culture starts from the from the top. And so the biggest reason we see or the main reason we've been given is that it is not a board or an investment uh, committee priority to do this. And the reason for that is they believe that their, their prime fiduciary duty is to generate returns. Anything they do that could jeopardize those returns and therefore they see their, their, uh, their mission should be set aside. So it's interesting because you have fiduciary duty being used in two ways. One is an as a reason why you should do it. And there's a reason why you shouldn't be doing it. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, really fits with what we see in our network. I think a lot of the institutions start looking at these issues for mission related reasons and or stakeholder pressures. And then, you know, as fiduciaries, they need to look under the hood and, and understand how these investments work, if they're going to require sacrificing returns um, and how it looks. And I think most as they go through that process, realize that they don't need to sacrifice returns and that indeed these strategies can help, you know, identify risks and, and open up new opportunities. Um, you know, I thought it was interesting, you know, the, the report showed that uh, most respondents don't believe you have to sacrifice returns. I think it's about 60%, but a fair number still were concerned about sacrificing returns. So I think that just shows there's still education that needs to be done. Um, and also, you know, I think it comes back to the idea that this isn't just one thing, you know, obviously if ESG across the board outperformed, everyone would do it, but it's it's not that simple. It still comes back to um, manager selection and the skill of managers and how they implement these factors in the investment process. So I think that's where, you know, the fiduciary duty piece comes back that, you know, of course, as fiduciaries, they really need to look at that um, and be confident that their strategies are uh, in the best interest for the financial returns of the portfolio. And, you know, just like any type of investing, that's that's the job, right, is finding the good managers and, and implementing the portfolio construction that can get you there. So, you know, I think it's not too different than traditional investing, but again, it's just a layer that can help um, help identify some of these risks and, and perform better in the long run. 
just to just to pause a moment on the uh, on the sacrifice and returns because this is something that we see fairly regularly with not for profits board level coming back and saying, well, hold on a moment, we've got to maximize profits here. That's what we. That's our duty as trustees, committee members, executives of organizations. We are here to maximize profit, and I will be held accountable if we don't do that and we do something else. That we agree, I think, unanimously that that, that tide is changing. Looking more closely, I suppose, Georgia, at, at, at impact and um, more direct, you know, purpose before profit related investments, are you seeing um, from some of your network that they're placing more emphasis on those types of investments, more impact themed with less of a, 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 a financial return and more of a perhaps a societal return? Not so much within our network. Our, our network is mostly higher education endowments, some foundations, other types of nonprofits where they're really looking for market rate returns. You know, some of the philanthropic foundations and others, um, I think there is, you know, looking at some concessionary returns as a, a part of mission aligned investing. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. And there's an important role in sort of the market and the ecosystem for that. Um, but just with our members in particular, it's really looking at the market rate strategies. Um, and to your point about current market conditions, you know, I think this is something particularly around the climate piece where, of course, you know, energy prices are high and um, those that are underweight or have divested from fossil fuels are, are missing out on that. But I think that's something that, you know, over the past 10 years, the, the markets were expecting that this wasn't going to be a, a linear trajectory. Um, and, you know, who knows how long some of these dynamics last. But I think the long term thesis is still strong. That is the energy um, you know, as the economy transitioned to a low carbon um, energy, that these these types of strategies are are going to be beneficial in the long term. So, uh, yeah, I think what's interesting is we we talked about the what and the why and the why not as well. I think it's important to talk about about the how these ESG factors are reflected in portfolios, um, and that is a a spectrum. The way I like to do it is like if you listen to music, some people like that little sound in the background, so they're not disturbing, but at least there's something, there's a bit of noise. And the ones like the headbangers, like I used to be when I had hair, and they like to use you listen to music quite loudly. So the same thing in the approaches you can employ to reflect your ESG beliefs in your portfolio is quite diverse. Um, not surprisingly, given the fact that these organizations are not selecting securities or constructing portfolios or selecting managers, it's oftentimes through the selection and the monitoring of their managers that they reflect those ESG factors. I want to make sure there's an alignment between what it is they want to achieve and also how the, the portfolio philosophy or construction is from the investment managers. And as that is about like 79% of people doing uh, organization doing ESG, fact, ESG investing, that's how they do it. We used to have in the past, and it's still quite prevalent, exclusion. If you think about it, it makes sense. If you're a hospital, why would you invest in a tobacco company? Why would you invest in a company that creates weapons? Why would you invest in alcohol? That's how you get clients, if you allow me that expression. So those exclusions used to be quite prevalent. It was also easy to say, you know what? I don't want to invest in this. Uh, easy is, a, is a, a, a relative term because if you're investing in a pool fund, forcing your beliefs or your views is a bit harder. And so it is, what's interesting is the market will respond to demand. And so what we're seeing is that more and more ESG uh, focus funds being created by investment managers, right? They want to meet the demands of their clients. They want to make money as well, right? So they're going to create these things, such as global equity, low carbon funds, as an example. Now, there's all the issue around greenwashing and people putting ESG on their, on their funds, and you need to still look quite uh 
um, diligently under the hood, making sure it's the right thing, or it's actually doing what it says on the tin, because otherwise you might just buy a, a good feeling without actually doing what you should supposed to be doing. Um, but so that, that's how it's being done. I think what's interesting as well is that the survey, although we don't have the time to do this, looks at results um, by region. And we see that some of the regions are, are further ahead in certain elements than others. And I think that's interesting because if you're working with a, a firm like Mercer that has a global network of NFP consultants, it, it's good for organizations that are doing like the first steps. They can learn from what others have done and maybe uh, navigate some of the pitfalls and uh, right away go from uh, what they're doing to best practices as they evolve. But I think it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how the market will continue to evolve to further uh, re, uh, meet the demands of, of, the, of their clients. And finally, if, if I may, uh, Paul, I know we need to, to jump into some other topics. I think that the, the one point I'm trying to make to, to, uh, to my clients is that they are long-term investors. A lot of them are endowed capital. The point of endowed capital is to be there for the long term. So yeah, maybe like the short term, the returns, it hurts a little bit, but it's also long-term risk management as well. And it's how you're going to be able to uh, evolve through time. You know, I just think um, your point about sort of that asset owner demand is so critical because it does come back to manager selection, um, but also engaging with existing managers on this. And I think both can really drive the whole market to be better and to address some of the outstanding issues around, you know, there are there are still challenges and some confusion around data access, lack of standardization, fees. And, you know, you mentioned greenwashing. There's, there's some challenges here, but I think the way we get through those challenges is asset owners um, really doing their due diligence, working with managers as they're selecting new managers and engaging with existing managers to uh, to help address some of these issues. Gilles, did you have something you wanted to add just before we move on? No, I was going to say that I think that the point that George was making earlier is actually good because if you look at two hot topics in the sustainable investment area, climate change and uh, diversity, uh, equality, inclusion, and if you look at, at climate change quickly, 56% respondents has identified this as the second biggest opportunity for them in the next three years. So we're talking about risk. We're talking about you know, returns being somewhat uh, potentially impacted, but they're still putting these opportunities out there. And what's interesting, I was having a, a, a meeting with a client uh, earlier uh, this month on climate change scenarios in ALM uh, setup. And one of my colleagues really introduced this quite strongly uh, and it really stuck with me. He said, look, your portfolio can have an impact on climate change. The company you decide to invest in and the companies that you work with to improve their, their practices around climate can have an impact on how, which path that the, that temperature is going to take and how quickly or efficiently we're going to be able to, to reduce uh, the, the increase in temperature as we're seeing in Europe right now. But the opposite is true as well. Even if you don't do anything, right? Climate change will have an impact on your portfolio because the companies you're investing in, depending on where they invested, what they're doing, will be impacted by climate changes. So irrespective of what it is that you do, you will have an impact. And I think it's important to understand from both perspectives, how your portfolio is constructed and how the, your portfolio is exposed to these two perspectives. And then see how you, you're able to adjust this. Are you comfortable with the risk involved? Comfortable with the opportunities involved? and how you're doing this, but it's really important. Now, the other thing we're hearing about a lot is also net zero. Uh, that's also like a sub-layer of climate change. And that's another one where we have challenges about sanitization of information. 
But 37 respondents have adopted a net zero target or plan to do so in the next 12 months. I mean, that, that is five years ago. Nobody was talking about net zero. That's, that's a big improvement, a big change. And again, if you look at why the companies that don't plan on doing it, uh, 50% of them, again, it starts from the board. So what that tells me is that there's still a need for education uh, for all stakeholders and those organizations as to what these aspects are. But that's only around you know, climate change. And DNI is another aspect that's quite important, uh, George. Absolutely. And no, I think your point about you know, climate risks um, impacting all portfolios is really critical. These are systems level risks, both climate and inequality. Um, and I think these tools like net zero portfolios are a great way for investors to have a framework to take a long-term approach to reducing those risks and working collectively to do so, because I don't think any one investor can, can do this on their own. Um, and this is something we've seen a lot of momentum around uh, with endowments in our network, making net zero commitments or, or evaluating them. Um, and, you know, we've had a long conversation in the last 10 years or so around, you know, to divest or not divest from fossil fuels. And I think this framework kind of moves us past that, that it you can either works. It's not mutually exclusive. So you can divest and you still need to address the rest of the sectors in your portfolio through a net zero uh, commitment um, or not and work to engage with those companies to to um, help bring about the transition. Um, and so I think, you know, even though, as you alluded to, some of these methodologies and tools and data, again, are still uh, nascent in many cases, we think it's really important for these asset owners to make these commitments publicly now and uh, send that powerful signal to the markets um, and doing so can help, you know, help with the development of these methodologies and standards for getting there. Um, and, and with issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, we see these as, first of all, very interrelated and intersectional, the climate and inequality piece. Um, and I think, you know, on DEI, this can really vary by, by region. And the report showed that, you know, again, ethics and mission were sort of driving a lot of these actions. Um, but, you know, I think, again, the case is not as clear to many about the... Um, financial performance and investment benefits, but there, there is data and studies showing that, that it is there. And so I think, you know, to your point, education is needed. Um, and there are strategies that investors can use to, to move in this direction. And we're seeing a lot of interest here in the U.S. around, you know, allocating to more diverse managers, um, bringing those perspectives directly into the investment process, um, investing in strategies explicitly designed to um, improve inequality. Uh, and engaging with companies, you know, again, in all sectors, uh, as well as investment managers to to think about these issues more strategically. Um, and, you know, I think to your point, Jill, about the coming from the top and coming from the board, you know, it was interesting to see the report that um, for those that aren't doing this and moving, you know, towards integrating DEI factors in the investment process, very few of them said it was because they didn't see a meaningful benefit or that they um, didn't see the investment opportunities, it was that it just wasn't a priority for the board. So um, I think these are things that can be done and are beneficial to, to nonprofit endowments. And it's just up to the board to, to make them a priority. So Gilles and George, thank you so much. Um, incredibly important and valuable topic. We could speak about it all day. Thank you again for, um, for, for all the guests who are joining us to discuss the 2022 Global Not-for-Profit Investment Survey findings. Um, we'll leave the link in full report in the podcast description. You can find it also, of course, on the Mercer Insight community. And if you've enjoyed today's episode of Critical Thinking, Critical Issues, please subscribe to us um, and leave a review. We do love uh, reviews here at Mercer. 
Um, if you'd like to speak to someone at Mercer, of course, we also love to talk. So please feel free to reach out to your local uh, Mercer representative uh, in your region or send an email to ctci at mercer.com. That's charlie tango, charlie indigo at mercer.com. Thank you.